It's time for a regular segment with barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, with Michael Mulligan here on CFAX 1070. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Yesterday would have been 104 in terms of the Premier's first 100 days of action. So perhaps it's fortunate that this story fell outside of it. But money laundering has been a longtime interest of, at that point, the Attorney General and now Premier David Eby. We saw an interesting legal story yesterday. Help us understand it. It's a fascinating story, and there is some background here, of course, as you've alluded to. Uh, this has been a, the issue of money laundering has been uh, sort of a uh, political issue for Mr. Eby for some time. Uh, I think he probably thought it was a winning political strategy because he could uh, look like he was tough on uh, some uh, form of uh, criminal activity uh, and then point the finger at the previous government saying you didn't stop this. I think that's probably the political uh, analysis of it. Uh, but the, the background here is, I think, really interesting. First of all, to understand what uh, the principal form of sort of uh, alleged money laundering was uh, in British Columbia. And this uh, much came out from this, that Cullen Commission that looked into it. Uh, and in large part, what appeared to have been going on was this. There were uh, Chinese citizens uh, who were very wealthy and wished to come and gamble uh, in British Columbia. Uh, and China has restrictions on uh, taking currency and money out of China. Uh, and so to facilitate uh, uh, their gambling desires, what would uh, occur uh, is that the wealthy Chinese prospective gambler uh, would make arrangements to transfer money into a, uh, a bank account in China, then fly over, maybe on their private jet, uh, to British Columbia, uh, where they would be, then be provided with uh, either like a suitcase of cash or a suitcase of casino chips. Uh, and then they would go into a casino here and generally, as most gamblers do, lose it all. <laughs> so that was the background. And the concern was, well, look, might this be a way that um, if there was a bunch of cash, like if somebody got the cash from drug dealing or something, they're able to launder it by giving the suitcase of cash to the whale gambler uh, and then winding up with the bank deposit in China. That was the concern. But it, it's an interesting fact that it appears that, by and large, the money was winding up in the hands of the government through the government-owned and run, regulated casinos. That's mm -hmm. what would happen. Yeah. Now, there was an investigation, and when there are big RCMP investigations, they tend to include the letter E at the beginning of them. And this one was called E-Nationalize, where they did a big investigation uh, uh, into uh, that kind of activity. Uh, and the RCMP, at the end of this investigation, um, sent a report to Crown Council um, suggesting that there might be money laundering charges, proceeds of crime, uh, that sort of thing. And Crown Council, regular Crown Council, got that large report from, from the police, uh, and they concluded that it was not appropriate to approve charges because there was no substantial likelihood of conviction. Um, and the challenge was there, what evidence is there that the cash or chips were the sort of proceeds of crime? Right? It might be suspicious, but it didn't look like there was, there was much evidence to establish that. And so Crown Council said, no, we're not approving charges. Um, then there was a request to the deputy, the assistant deputy attorney general, Peter Juck, to review uh, the charge approval decision made by regular Crown. And we know that because of a letter that David Eby sent to Peter Juck on November 26th of 2021. Mm -hmm. And 
The uh, then AGEB says, that, look, you, Juck, uh, have uh, reviewed the charge approval decision, and you agree that there should be no charges approved. It doesn't meet the threshold. And then what happens is really interesting, and this is how the Crown Counsel Act works. Indeed, we have an act called the Crown Counsel Act. That act allows the Attorney General to direct various things to happen. Uh, one of the things that the Attorney General could do, and this is interesting, is they could simply direct, approve the charges. I don't care what you think. I disagree. Go ahead. That's not quite what happened here. Instead, what Attorney General Eby did was to order uh, Peter Juck uh, to say, look, where I'm directing that a special prosecutor be appointed to review the decision of regular Crown Counsel and the decision of you, Juck, <laughs> um, to determine whether charges should be approved. Uh, and in that letter, which we now have, the November 26, 2021 letter, the then Attorney General Eby uh, says a few things. He says, first of all, he thinks that public confidence in the justice system would be damaged if there uh, isn't a prosecution where there's a viable path to prosecution, uh, and saying that I want a, I'm directing uh, that a special prosecutor, like an independent lawyer, go and review the decision of Crown Counsel. Look, I don't like your decision that you don't think there's a substantial likelihood of conviction. I want to try again with somebody else. Hmm. And then says that if that lawyer concludes there is a viable path to prosecuting the person, then the prosecution should be initiated, which is to say, it appears, don't pay any heed to the whether there's any public interest in prosecuting it. I'm telling you there is, uh, and I want this uh, reviewed. And so... What happened is then Chris Constantine, the senior lawyer in Victoria, reviewed everything, reviewed all the material, the reports, the decisions made by Crown not to prosecute, uh, and he released his decision uh, yesterday agreeing with the decision made by both the line Crown who reviewed it and the review by Peter Juck. He said, I come to the same conclusion. Uh, and one of the fundamental problems with the proposed prosecution is appreciating that everyone might be suspicious about, well, where did that suitcase of money come from to be handed to the gambler, right? Uh, that there wasn't clear evidence that that was the proceeds of crime. It might be suspicious because it's a bunch of cash or a bunch of casino chips, but it could be that somebody had that money from some business interest. They thought it was great. I, there's nothing illegal in Canada about facilitating somebody from China getting money out of the country. That might be unlawful in China, but... So what? Uh, and so you, it could be that the money given to the gamblers wasn't money from drug sales. Maybe it was just, well, this is a good business opportunity, right? If I can make some percentage by uh, facilitating uh, some wealthy gambler coming to BC to gamble, well, great, I'll do that, right? Yeah. And so what was proposed by the RCMP was to suggests that the illegal activity would be operating a, an unlicensed money service business, <laughs> huh. not some criminal activity like drug dealing or other things that might come to mind for how somebody could wind up with a, a suitcase of cash or poker chips. And, and so the reason now articulated clearly for all to read uh, uh, from Mr. Considine is, look, that was really shaky ground upon which to found a very complicated uh, prosecution. The theory that this must have been money from, uh, you know, constitutes the proceeds of crime because the underlying criminal activity was not having a license for this business. 
and just concluded there just wasn't a substantial likelihood of conviction, and this would amount to sort of this monstrous prosecution in the sense of huge uh, volumes of material, tens of thousands of messages and 90 cell phones, and it might turn into this uh, overwhelmingly large, uh, time-consuming prosecution, which did not have any substantial likelihood of conviction. And so that's the decision now. And there will be a number of options for the, now the current attorney general. Um, she, she could accept this. She could, another option we saw before, the other thing this brings to mind are the prosecutions for polygamy out of Bountiful BC, where various AGs over the years didn't like decisions saying that there's no likelihood of conviction and then just appointing serial special prosecutors until they got the decision they wanted to prosecute. That's possible. Um, and I should say, one protection the Crown Counsel Act has in it uh, to try to uh, avoid the complete politicalization of prosecutions, right, which is the concern because, of course, right, there's political interest here, right? The EG kind of, you know, sort of staked out his um, position uh, on... Uh, money laundering, and really clearly, according to the letter he sent to Jack, wanted this prosecution to proceed, right? Yeah. So one option the current attorney general would have would be try again, right? If she wanted to, she could uh, send a, a direction that another person is going to be appointed to review it. Now, one protection we have is that when there are those kinds of directions from the attorney general, which may, of course, be political, mm-hmm. There's a requirement that the directions be published in the Gazette so that we can review them. That's why I'm able to sit here and look at this direction to Peter Juck. Um, now, there's also an interesting provision uh, that allows the Attorney General to delay the publication uh, if they concluded it would be in the interests of the administration of justice. And that was done here. So we didn't know. Uh, that Mr. Eby had made this direction to try again with a, a different independent uh, prosecutor until yesterday. Mm-hmm. And that's because he invoked this section of the Section 8 of the Crown Council Act to delay publication of it. A final option um, people should be aware of is that the Attorney General um, could simply direct that charges be approved. They could say, look, I don't like that the uh, regular Crown has said there's no likelihood of conviction. I don't like that uh, Mr. Juck reviewed it and agreed, and I don't like that uh, Chris Considine has independently reviewed it yet again and again came to the conclusion that this doesn't meet the standard for charge approval. That would be a final option. And so if the AG is bound and determined for whatever reason uh, to insist on a prosecution, they have the power to do that. Uh, And that's under Section 5 uh, of the Uh, Crown Counsel Act. It says the Attorney General or Deputy Attorney General can give the Assistant Deputy Attorney General a direction with respect to the approval or conduct of any specific prosecution or appeal. That direction must be given in writing to the Assistant Deputy Attorney General and be published in the Gazette. Mm. And so uh, if the current AG wishes, uh, she can simply direct uh, Mr. Juck in writing Proceed. I don't care about your opinion. I don't care about the opinion of Mr. Considine, and I don't care about the opinion of the original Crown who made this uh, decision. Uh, and go ahead. And so, uh, and if that happened, we, we might surmise it from the fact that, that that occurred, but we may not learn about it until, for example, after a prosecution has been completed because of that power to delay publication. We would eventually find out 
which is important so that you know if there has been uh, political interference uh, in a uh, or potential political interference in a uh, prosecution in some way or other, including whether it's approved, but we may not know about that right away. Um, so that's what's happened here. That's why there isn't any current prosecution, and the ball's now back in the uh, uh, government's court in terms of whether they feel so strongly about this, they wish to overrule uh, all of the lawyers who have reviewed this and made the determination that there is not uh, a substantial likelihood of conviction. So back to the, back to the government. Fascinating. Michael Mulligan, we're going to take a quick break. Legally speaking, we'll continue right after this. And we are all listening to Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It's legally speaking here on CFAX 1070 as we continue with our coverage. We also have other topics on the agenda and nine minutes to discuss them. Michael, where shall we go next? Yeah, perhaps the uh, a good place to go next uh, would be a, a case that actually is out of Victoria. Uh, and it's a, a case uh, involving a civil claim uh, for eye surgery gone wrong hmm. uh, that has a, a host of, I think, uh, in interesting legal issues that arise with that kind of a claim. And the background of it is that a uh, then healthy 59-year-old uh, from Victoria was interested in having eye surgery to correct his vision. Uh -huh. uh, he went to a local uh, eye surgeon in Victoria uh, who determined he wasn't a good candidate for laser eye surgery of the ordinary kind uh, because apparently his, he was farsighted and his eyes had a narrow angle. For some uh -huh. reason, that didn't make him a suitable candidate. Uh -huh. But he wound up going to a different eye surgeon over on the Lower Mainland uh, who was going to take a different approach, uh, which amounted to replacing the lenses of his eyes rather than using a laser, I guess, to reshape uh, the front of the eye, whatever the technical term for that would be. Yeah. It would be to replace the lenses in the same way the court described as you might have surgery for um, cataracts, hmm. right, where they replace the foggy lens with a clear one. Interesting. But... In this case, uh, he didn't have cataracts, and this was entirely um, optional surgery, right, to correct his vision. And that's important uh, because uh, it has to do with the decision, the information that has to be provided about risks and the assessment of some, what somebody might do with them. Now, here, uh, he had one eye done. That went fine. Uh, but then the man went back to have the second eye uh, done, and things went sideways. Uh, apparently the uh, new lens gets folded over and injected, described as like a taco, <laughs> uh, into a small slit in the eye. But the the doctor recognized there was some defect with the uh, lens that was put in. Uh, and then instead of taking 10 or 15 minutes, spent 52 minutes pulling it out and trying, putting another one in. Uh, the, it sounds like the anesthetic wore off and the man was, uh, could feel sharp instruments in his eye and testified that he was yelling out in pain. And oh my his leg God. I'm, that's and awful. Didn't get any more an, and didn't get any more anesthetic. Oh my. Uh, the oh. doctor, for his part, claimed that he thought he gave the person anesthetic, but didn't make any note of it in the records, which the judge rejected. Um, and then the man went blind, uh, in that eye. Uh, and there were then a whole series of various further surgeries to try to correct the problem. Uh, and they managed to recover the vision, which was completely gone, apparently, from that eye. But in so doing, there was some injury caused to the man's eyelid. So it drooped down in front of his eye. So he still can't see properly out of the eye. And so on that basis, he sued. Yeah. Um, and so the reason why the fact that the... Um, surgery was elective is relevant is that 
one of the first things that's analyzed is whether the uh, individual was told about all the risks that would be inherent in surgery, right? And the judge found that the judge wasn't satisfied that the man was told about all of these risks, the risks of, you know, all the complications this man has still suffered. Um, And the reason the fact that it was elective surgery is important is that that's not the end of it, because you then have to determine would the person have gone ahead with the procedure even if they were properly informed of all the risks. And if it's some kind of surgery which is sort of life and death, right, if you're, you know, wheeled into the emergency room with a knife sticking out of you, (laughs) right, and if they don't do something, you're going to die, even if the doctor doesn't take the time to sort of go through the risk of anesthetic and the risk of infection and all these various things, uh, and one of those things occurs, you're not likely to have a successful claim because the assessment is going to be, well, even if I told you that there, even if I failed to warn you that you could get an infection after the surgery to remove the knife from your back, hmm. you would have done it anyways because the alternative was death, right? And so you might not have any, you might not have a successful claim even if you wound up, even if the surgery went sideways and even if you weren't told about a particular risk. But here, uh, because the judge found that there was a failure to advise a man of all the risks, um, and because the surgery was completely elective, right? It was just sort of a preferred not to wear glasses, right? Mm-hmm. A judge concluded that uh, a reasonable person would not have proceeded had he been told. Um, in other words, a reasonable person in these circumstances would not have consented to the procedure if properly advised of the risks in question, which I must say is a little ominous <laughs> in terms of this particular procedure, but that's what the judge found. Mm. Um, and so that's why whether surgery is elective or not, um, is uh, important when assessing what happens when something goes haywire because there are errors in surgeries like anything, right? Mm-hmm. There isn't a guarantee of success. Yeah. And not every time there is a failure are you going to get some compensation for it. Uh, and so here, however, the, the, doc, the judge found that uh, had the man been told about the risk of list of things, corneal damage and dysfunction, permanent vision loss, Pitosis, I think that's the eyelid continuing to droop down. Hmm. He wouldn't have gone ahead. Um, and so that then brought the judge to have to sort out, well, what are the, what's the appropriate compensation um, for this? Um, and there were a number of things that went into that decision. Uh, part of it uh, was a uh, assessing the damage caused by the still loss of vision, right, the eyelid drooping down. Hmm. There was also a claim based on... Um, uh, the uh, disfigurement, that's the way it was described, for the, the eyelid uh, drooping down as a result of these further corrective surgeries. Uh, and then there was also consideration given for, well, what should the compensation be given that the 52 minutes of excruciating pain without anesthetic, which the judge accepted wasn't administered, um, judge did not accept the doctor's uh, evidence that he administered it and just didn't write it down. Yeah, uh, and so the the figure for that uh, was one hundred and eighty thousand dollars. That's what the man's been awarded. Um, the other, uh, and I suppose uh, one of the things I think about when there's kind of awards like that is you think of is that really adequate compensation if somebody had to go through this process and have these potentially life uh, altering uh, effects? But um, that that is what the award was. The other thing which is interesting about this case, and it arises uh, in a variety of contexts where there uh, are further medical interventions to try to correct a problem, 
um, is that in BC we have this thing called the Health Care Cost Recovery Act, and that act allows the uh, effectively the provincial government to join in a, a claim to make a claim for the medical services that have to be provided to correct the problem, right? Like if um, you, you, know, you injure somebody and they have to have corrective surgery and it costs the province a bunch of money, the province can add in, you know, sort of tag along in the claim and say, well, I want that money from the person who caused the problem. And indeed, they did that here. Huh. Uh, and so the provincial government got involved uh, and made a claim under the Health Care Cost Recovery Act for $7,765.83, that being the cost of the health care that was provided to the man uh, to try to correct the problems caused by this uh, procedure gone haywire. Uh, and the province has recovered that. Uh, and so uh, the result of all this is that either the doctor or more like the doctor's insurance company uh, will be uh, paying the uh, man the $180,000 and that amount to the province to help cover the cost of the um, surgeries to, to fix the problem. But uh, boy, oh boy, I must say as I read this 52-page uh, uh, judgment, uh, it certainly should give somebody some pause if they're contemplating uh, that kind of surgery on an, an elective basis. And again, this doesn't appear to be the kind of surgery that would be the more common kind of laser corrective surgery. It's replacing uh, lenses. But uh, hopefully uh, in the future, uh, there can be some additional steps engaged in to avoid uh, this kind of catastrophic uh, problem. One of them was suggested was perhaps the lenses should be inspected uh, under a microscope or something before they're inserted. But uh, boy, oh boy, it uh, sounds like a, a completely horrific experience uh, for this man and uh, good that he wound up at least with some compensation for it. Absolutely. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking. Pleasure as always, Michael. Until next week. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye now.